Welcome to Native Yoga Toddcast. So happy you are here. My goal with this channel is to bring inspirational speakers to the mic in the field of yoga, massage, body work, and beyond. Follow us at Native Yoga and check us out at nativeyogacenter.com. All right, let's begin. Welcome to Native Yoga Toddcast for repeat listeners. Welcome back. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your listenership. For those of you that are new, I have a special edition this week for you. So, But before I get started, I want to mention that in the show notes below, you'll see that if you're interested in practicing with us via live stream, you can click on the link where it says two weeks of free unlimited live stream yoga classes, and that can get you started where you can try it out for two weeks, totally free, no credit card required, super easy. Uh, also, I have a new student free 30-minute yoga meet and greet. So you'll see on my Calendly calendar, you can book a session totally free, 30 minutes. The reason I'm doing this is that I have people that are joining in on the live stream and I don't get a chance to meet them prior. And so if you are interested, that is an option. Uh, schedule a session. I'll meet with you on Zoom and you can tell me all the things that are going on for you. And then while you're in the live stream classes, I can uh, keep that in mind and get tidbits of information while we're practicing together to help you along. And the third thing that I want to announce that I'm quite excited about, both Tamara and I are offering Native Yoga Teacher Training, a 200-hour and 300-hour Yoga Alliance training program that's going to start on January 4th of 2023. I also have a link, which I'll put in the show notes below, that allows if you just put your email in, you'll get an email back that gives you all the information straight to your inbox just to make it really easy so that you don't have to click around all over the place looking for it. And hopefully all that helps and makes it easy. So I wanted to get that out of the way before we begin. Today, I want to present a new segment that I'm going to title Yoga Yarns. And this one is me telling a story about my experience hanging out with Hare Krishna devotees. And so this is going to be something a little bit different, but I just wanted to share a story from my past that has helped to shape who I am today. And one of my favorite parts about studying and practicing with my yoga teacher, Tim Miller, was listening to his storytelling. I have really fond memories of being in his studio at the Ashtanga Yoga Center in Encinitas, California, and listening to Tim share his experience of practicing yoga and about his travels throughout India. I found it incredibly entertaining to hear him tell stories about his experience finding yoga and hearing stories about what it was like for him to practice with his teacher. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed listening to him talk about some of the epic texts like the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita and the Ramayana. And I loved hearing him convey stories about the heroes of these epics like Hanuman, Rama, and Sita. 
I feel that the storytelling component has played a really important part in helping me appreciate yoga and its history. I also find that by listening to and hearing stories from either our guests here on the show or from different people I get the opportunity to speak with helps me to deepen my relationship to yoga. I find that listening to other practitioners' stories about their journey into and through yoga brings a clearer picture about what yoga is and what it can be for me. Learning from the anecdotes of others helps me appreciate and deepen my awareness of how extremely beneficial yoga practice can be. It is really fascinating to me how finding connection through story opens new doors of understanding. So with that being said, I want to tell you a story. (laughs) Uh, When I was 18, I graduated from Jupiter High School in North Palm Beach County in Florida. Upon completion, I reluctantly went to University of Florida in Gainesville I say reluctantly because at that time I was unsure if college was the best option for me and I had made a promise to at least give it a try and therefore I decided to give it a go and I enrolled in classes during the summer right after my high school graduation. I believe that part of my reluctance stemmed in part by the fact that just a year earlier I was lucky enough to spend a couple of weeks on the island of Maui in Hawaii. And during one of my adventures while there, I came across a book called Be Here Now by Ram Das. And I'm guessing you're probably already familiar with this book. If you're not, please pick up a copy of Be Here Now by Ram Das. It is an extremely interesting book. It has all these really psychedelic illustrations combined with stream of consciousness style writing in a form that is uniquely Ram Das. Dasi, who his close friends often refer to him as, was a pioneer in the field of consciousness expansion. In his book, Be Here Now, Ram Das shares his experience of going to India and meeting his guru, Neem Karoli Baba. And the book highlights how he was introduced to yoga and the path that it took him on. When I first saw the book, my mind was opened up and my interest was immediately piqued. And up until then, I hadn't really come across any sort of book like this. At this point in my life, I was really seeking stability, focus, and some direction. And be here now... As random and chaotic (laughs) that it seemed on the surface, it it pointed me in the direction of the teachings of India. I'm guessing that it really depends on how old you are as to whether you can relate to this or not, but probably you can remember back to when you were a teenager and in high school and planning and thinking about what you're going to do after and what your ambitions are. For some people, knowing what you are going to do for your career is really easy to figure out. For others of us, it's a really confusing and difficult time. 
I remember very clearly being in that stage of my life, you know, like junior, senior in high school and having no clear or even vague idea of what in the world I was going to end up doing as a career path and what the future would hold. In some ways, it was incredibly exciting. And in other ways, it was so nerve wracking for me. I really craved direction and some insight as to how I could find happiness and freedom through a career path. And the more I tried to search my soul for direction, I couldn't help but feel a pull to learn yoga the way Ram Das spoke of it in his book. I remember clearly thinking that what I really, really wanted was to learn about yoga in an in-depth way like he had. And the other strong impulse I had was that all I wanted to do was travel. The world, I wanted to travel and experience cultures really far from the one I had grown accustomed to here in Florida. And when I read about Ram Das's adventures in India, I had the feeling that my greatest achievement in life would be to someday go to India. I wanted so badly to travel the world. I wanted to go to as many countries as possible, and I wanted to study and learn in foreign lands. And it was that summer in Hawaii that the travel bug seed was planted. So when I arrived at the University of Florida in Gainesville, uh, just to paint the scene a bit here, I felt like a major fish out of water. When I, when I saw the picture of Bhagwan Das uh, with his long, unruly hair and massive beard in Ram Das's book, I somehow thought that wild and unkempt appearance would bring me closer to my goal uh, of the freedom that yoga extols. And I had let my hair turn to dreadlocks and I let my beard grow outside the boundaries of typical control. It got really long. Uh, now, while in Gainesville is known for its hippie population, I wasn't completely outside of its elements, but I definitely stuck out like a sore thumb on the campus. At least that's how I felt. Uh, funnily enough, you know the quote, uh, it's really a song by Radiohead, we do it to ourselves, we do. Um, so yet I'll try not to judge my own folly of youthful angst as I relay this story to you. Um, as I As I look back, I think an important detail to add here was that I was struggling pretty seriously with depression. Uh, while, while I was at home and through my junior and senior year of high school, I had a very strong bout of deep depression. I, I couldn't see any purpose to life. It had gotten bad enough that my parents encouraged me to seek help in which I was prescribed antidepressant medication. And I was so against taking medication for depression. Like I had this feeling that I wanted to be able to overcome what I was going through naturally. I didn't want to take a pharmaceutical to help the situation. And I really wanted to find like a natural cure. Yet it had gotten bad enough that I succumbed to the help of modern science uh, to see if, you know, indeed it could help. And I want to mention that this here because 
As I now look back at this particular time in my life, it makes perfect sense to me why I was seeking yoga. I also, I want to bring light to the fact that part of the danger of yoga is that when we are struggling through a major life upheaval, that it can seem like yoga will offer a form of escape. I wanted to escape and the idea of finding a group of people or find a community of support I could escape into seemed really appealing. So on that note, let me just continue with this story. Uh, So uh, Gainesville truly is and was a really beautiful town, and it's located in the rolling hills of central northern Florida. It's about an hour's drive from the historic coastal town of St. Augustine. Uh, The campus in the countryside has these long, sloping hills, green pastures, beautiful forests, tall oak trees, long strands of moss that hang and kind of set the stage for the beauty that the South is known for. Gainesville was a very small town in 1992. Gainesville has grown tremendously since then, but in 92, it was a really small town and pretty much the university is what made Gainesville what it was. Another interesting tidbit about Gainesville, I'm going to go a little off track here, is that it was where the legendary Tom Petty is from. I love TP. I love his musical style so much that for me, I mean, Gainesville must be an amazing place, right? Uh, But nonetheless, when when I got to Gainesville, it was a very exciting time for me. I was free. I, I was out of my childhood home, and I felt... The excitement of having an endless world of opportunity at my fingertips. At the end, I'm sorry, at the same time, I had this horrifying feeling of like having no idea how I could pull off any of the dreams I had been brewing in my body and mind. So when I arrived in Gainesville, I started to explore my surroundings. I was walking through this park in the middle of campus and I saw food that was being distributed. It was free food on top of that. And, uh, well, as a poor college student, I found this fact doubly attractive. On top of that, the food was being distributed by people wearing orange robes, and the men had shaved heads with little ponytails at the top and back of their head, which was a very unusual haircut that I had not seen before. Uh, So being a dreadlock, hippie-looking guy, I figured I wouldn't be judged too harshly by these equally unique-looking individuals. And they were decked out in Tulsi bead ornaments and japa malas worn around like their neck, their wrists, or both. And when I discovered they were serving vegetarian food, which at that time I was I was really into veganism and practicing that style of diet, I, I felt right at home. I was intrigued by the fact that the food tasted so good, the fact that it was being handed out for free, and that there was a very non-judgmental atmosphere about the experience that made me feel right at home. I As I devoured my delicious curry, I began to ask questions about what this was all about and learned that they were Hare Krishna devotees and a part of ISKCON, I-S-K-C-O-N, which is the International Society of Krishna Consciousness, or a.k.a. the Hare Krishna movement. This was the closest I had come to finding something in the realm of yoga and ideas that were spoken of in Be Here Now by Ram Das. 
Needless to say, I was really intrigued. I was getting my first look into yoga culture and I embraced it. I was so interested and excited to learn from the Hare Krishna devotees. So I started to hang out with the devotees that I was meeting in the park. And in the attempt to respect the folks I met, I'll change the names of everyone that I used during the storytelling session so I can respect their privacy. Uh, One of the devotees that I met who was willing to try to answer all my questions was James. We were both about the same age, and I couldn't believe that he was living like a monk and had taken the vows of a Krishna devotee. I was 18 at the time, and he was just a year older than me, which did get me thinking that this could be a possibility for me. Uh, Again, I can't help but reminisce about the peculiarity I felt at being officially, you know, quote, an adult, end quote, and at 18, but so not really sure how to wield this responsibility. What an amazing and overwhelming time uh, in life, uh, I must say. Anyhow, James was living as a monk in the Krishna community, and he had shaved his head, except for the tuft of hair that he left on top, and he'd given up all his belongings, and he was living as a renunciate. This really seemed like a good idea to me at the time. I mean, the part of this that I found interesting is that, you know, if I'm looking for what I'm going to do in the world, and I look at how I'm going to survive in the world, and I look at maybe the challenge of figuring out how to pay my bills, and that this prospect seemed incredibly overwhelming. Well, becoming a devotee almost seemed like a get-out-of-jail-free prospect that I began to entertain. I know you're thinking the same thing I am right now, if only it was that simple. I mean, at that time, I was trying to figure out and asking myself the, the question, what should I do? And then I come across a tradition or culture or a group of people that have found a way to not have to work. And I couldn't help but think that this might be a possibility for me. Uh, there's more to this as we go deeper, but, you know, living the life of a monk where you where you now are given up ambition or uh, for material accumulation and the, the goal of striving to achieve and um, amass wealth is left behind uh, seemed appealing to me. Whenever I contemplated a monk sitting in meditation without any care for what others thought, I, I, I saw, I felt there must be something to this, you know, now looking back, I'm fully aware that nothing is truly as simple as it seems. Yet I have to admit, a part of me was at that time in my life was thinking maybe I should become a monk. Maybe if I could just let go of all this trying to figure out what the heck I'm going to do and just live the life of an ascetic, this would be the solution to all my problems. So I decided to spend more time hanging out with the Krishna devotees to see if this really was something I wanted to take seriously. And it was through this process that I feel like I took my first baby steps toward walking along the yoga path. As I started to hang out with the Krishna devotees, the more I began to see that there was a lot more to this style of commitment than perhaps I first thought. One of the highlights of this path I found most inspirational was I started to read the Bhagavad Gita. If you're listening to this podcast, uh, and there's a really good chance that you already know what the Bhagavad Gita is. If you are unfamiliar with the Bhagavad Gita, 
when you go to purchase your copy of Be Here Now by Ram Das, uh, please also purchase a copy of the Bhagavad Gita and begin to read it front to back. Uh, the Bhagavad Gita is one of the most famous texts in India and has one of the most fantastic and incredible storylines. The long story short is Krishna, who is God as man, so an incarnation of God on earth, has an interaction with a warrior named Arjuna. And Arjuna is on a battlefield and he is faced with one of the most difficult decisions of his life. And he has to determine if he should go to battle. And if he goes to battle, the people he is battling, or some of them are his friends and or distant relatives, or people that he has respect for, like his old teachers that he used to study with. And so it's a metaphor, in my opinion, for daily life and the challenges that we face constantly in terms of decision-making and how to act in the world and or how to pull back from the world and practice renunciation. So the Bhagavad Gita is a fascinating story. It's extremely rich in inspiration and thought-provoking inquiry. It is, in my opinion, a well-crafted myth that extols the highest virtues that storytelling can convey. It is one of those books that's worth reading over and over and over again, like through an entire lifetime. So as I started reading the Bhagavad Gita and going to kirtans, I began to cultivate my bhakti yoga practice. And the word kirtan, that's derived from the Sanskrit root, meaning to call, recite, praise, or glorify. Uh, to put it in simple form, kirtan is uh, the act of praising and glorifying some form of divinity. In bhakti yoga, glorification can be expressed in a multitude of ways including through poetry, drama, dance, or any form of oral recitation. So kirtan, in its most popular form, is the call and response singing of a mantra that usually focuses on Radha, Krishna, Sita, and Rama. I began to learn that yoga is incredibly diverse in the types of approaches available for us to begin to practice with, Yoga can include multiple approaches, of which the most famous are Hatha Yoga, Raja Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, Jnana Yoga, and Karma Yoga. Uh, Hatha Yoga, that's what you're most likely familiar with, is the posture and breathing aspect of yoga and or the approach that emphasizes the uh, attempt at finding balance uh, amongst the opposition of forces inherent in existence. Uh, Raja Yoga, or commonly known as the Royal Path, is primarily contemplative practice with emphasis on the cultivation of self-realization through a meditation practice. Bhakti Yoga, as I mentioned, is the method that uses devotional practices to help liberate our senses. And we have Jnana Yoga, which is considered a very challenging method of yoga, which uses our ability to reason as a tool for achieving liberation. It involves the cultivation of our higher discriminative awareness, which can help us come into contact with reality and limit delusional obsessions. Karma yoga is the simple recognition that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. 
And typically, karma yoga involves selfless action. That is the intention of helping others with the hope of creating a happier and healthier planet and experience for humanity and all living creatures. The Hare Krishna movement utilizes the path of bhakti yoga and devotion, of which one of the primary methods of practice is singing and chanting. Kirtan with a group of passionate Krishna devotees is like one of the most fun and liberating experiences I'd come across while I was at university, that's for sure. Uh, I'm a huge fan of music. One of my favorite experiences is to be at a really large concert and have the entire audience sing along with the artists on stage and that feeling of harmony that comes from thousands of people singing together in unison So kirtans are like an intimate musical experience where we have the opportunity to join together in song and with emotion and can just like come pouring out. Uh, While I admit I was really timid in this environment and it felt so foreign to me at first, as I began to build relationships in the community, I felt more inclined to just let go and join in in the excitement of being of belting out the choruses with these ecstatic devotees. And kirtans are often driven by the use of harmoniums and drums, and the words are often really simple to learn, like Ram and Hare Krishna. There's a whole bunch of different chants that are used in bhakti yoga. So within the Hare Krishna tradition and practice, a mantra called the Maha Mantra, which is the Krishna Mantra, is used. Which is used is really simple, and it goes like Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare. So the mantra is repeated over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, For those of you that are fans of the Beatles, George Harrison, he was a Krishna devotee for the most part. And upon investigation of some of his lyrics and songwriting, you can see it's really evident. Like in his song, uh, My Sweet Lord, he sings, uh, Now I really want to see you, Hare Ram, really want to be with you, Hare Ram, really want to see you, Lord, aha. But it takes so long, my Lord, aha, hallelujah. we can credit George Harrison for really bringing the Hare Krishna mantra to the forefront in the Western culture through his appreciation and love of the Krishna movement. And without going too far down this other subject, though, the Beatles in general, they brought yoga in a large force to the ears of us Westerners. And admittedly, until now, I had sung those lyrics in my youth, yet I was unaware of what they, what they meant. If we ask the question, what is the purpose of chanting the Hare Krishna mantra anyway? Uh, the purpose of chanting the mantras over and over again is that it is a profound technique and tool for calming the mind and bringing our attention into the present moment. Another aspect of the Krishna mantra, the, the Maha mantra, is the expression of immersive devotion from the bhakti yoga perspective, which by the way is distinctly a theistic tradition. It's meaning that there's a strong belief that a higher power exists. So as a bhakti yoga, the idea is I bow and I prostrate at the feet 
of Krishna and I cultivate a sense that Krishna is so great, Krishna is so powerful and so much bigger than myself that I can never really fully understand the dynamic power of Krishna. So I am a humble servant and I am not striving to ever achieve Krishna-like status because how could I? My only goal is to remain a humble servant and that I just want to remain a servant. I have no ambition of becoming anything remotely close to that resembling a master. So I just want to worship and I just want to pray and I I just want to chant. And the word Hare means to take away. And in essence, chanting the mantra Hare Krishna, in a sense it's like pleading or a wish and or a call to Krishna to say, please take my suffering away. Uh, I just... I just want to add here that I wrestle sometimes with this concept. One thing that I observed as a child growing up in a religious household was that sometimes people acted really irresponsibly and then they would pray for God to fix their problems. And it seemed to me that if they just changed their behavior, then they wouldn't need to dump their potentially controllable personal responsibility on an invisible force. Uh, In other words, And to try to put it simply, hypocrisy really annoys me. Uh, But uh, here was where I always had this like push-pull with religion and the concept of God or Krishna. Uh, The challenge of knowing how much to just surrender and how much to exert hard work and not just throw in the towel of responsibility and here began my questioning process regarding my involvement with the Hare Krishna community. I have full respect for those that are able to relinquish autonomy to a higher authority because that in itself is an incredible challenge. Uh, for some, it's the easiest thing to do, but for me, it's one of the most difficult. Uh, that is why to this day, I, it still remains an ongoing investigation and practice that I'm, I'm always open to exploring further. Uh, when I think about this concept of wanting God to take away my suffering, it reminds me as well that what is inherent in all deep investigation of the mind is that there are always many angles for which to practice these concepts. Like Ram Das makes mention that Neem Karoli Baba used to say that suffering and pain brings me closer to God. So there is this intense cry out to God to please take away my suffering. And at the same time, there is cultivation of appreciating pain and suffering because if we can see that pain and suffering is also God, then experiencing it brings us fully into the appreciation that all is God. The entire universe of material existence is just an expression of this realization. Therefore, pain and suffering also is God. And herein lays the duality. So please take suffering away. Please let me feel suffering so I can get closer to you. And I just find this paradox super interesting. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome to the Alchemy of Natural Healing. I'm your host, Laurel Dewey. 
True healing is an alchemical process, meaning it must transform you on all levels, body, mind, and spirit. What affects one affects all three. True healing is one of the hardest journeys you'll ever travel, but it's one of the most rewarding and fulfilling when you get to meet yourself for the first time. If you're ready to take that journey, let's get started. In relaying this story to you, I'm, I'm fully aware that these concepts may or may not resonate with you. So I do appreciate, appreciate you being patient and being open to listening. And my philosophy is that when searching for understanding and hope in life, that I have to give an honest look and inspection into a, a specific idea or philosophy that comes with the tradition and, and just be open and listen. I, I need to develop an eager and inquisitive outlook. I just want to continue to try these various philosophies and continuously view the world through unique and changing eyes. Uh, ideas help me so I can get a little closer to feeling peace and tranquility and, and a sense of purpose in life. And all these questions and answers were circulating for me at the time when I was hanging out with the Krishna devotees. And so I would go with them in the morning and before the sunrise and walk through the forest and we'd use the Japa Malas, which have 108 beads on them. And I'd chant Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare. And then move my fingers to the next bead. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare. And try to chant at least 108 times the Hare Krishna mantra. And some of us would chant really slow, you know, like, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Ram, Hare Hare. Or if you're like trying to blaze through the 108, <laughs> you can chant like, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram, Hare Hare. And so the main idea though is like fast or slow. It, it, it doesn't really matter in the end. A lot of it is just putting your attention into focusing and, and feeling the mantra. The other element to this is that, and that is really interesting, is that Krishna devotees believe that if at the time of death I'm chanting Hare Krishna, at the time of passing I automatically get a free pass into what's called Krishna Loka. And Krishna Loka amongst Krishna devotees is believed to be like the best, highest, most pure sacred space that we can land or arrive into the t at the time of passing. So it's a very similar concept to most religions that have a heaven or a sphere that after death that you know you'll you'll move into, and in this case directly in communion with Krishna. So I would hang out and chant Hare Krishna in the morning with the devotees. I'd go to the Krishna temple and offer service and help clean in the kitchen. I'd go out to Alachua where there was a Krishna temple and listen to the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, readings and talks and participate in the kirtans. And I just got really involved in the culture and the community. And I also continued with my studies at University of Florida. And my curiosity spilled over into my elective course choices because I wanted to fulfill my dream of one day traveling to Africa. And I signed up and took a Swahili language class. 
And I had this dream of going to Africa. I really wanted to travel to Africa. I've always been so fascinated by African culture. And I just had this passion and drive to do everything I could to increase my odds of actually making that happen. And so studying Swahili seemed like the closest I could get to an African travel here while I was in Florida. So I went for it. And most people in the class, like looking at me, uh, like, what in the world are you doing here? And uh, my parents were like, what in the world are you doing taking Swahili? (laughs) And I just think that they were flabbergasted by my choices at the time. And to be honest, being a parent myself, I can now fully appreciate just how challenging it it was probably to raise me. (laughs) based on some of the choices I made, you know, I I can understand now how difficult that might've been for them to watch me pursue my path. Uh, yeah. What I love about them is that they, they really kept loving me, even though I took a completely non-traditional learning path. And I only hope I can show that same type of love to my own kids as they go out into the world on their own. And I remember I wanted to, get out of university so bad and just start traveling and seeing the world that I was busting at my seams. Uh, I just, I had this really strong feeling that I needed to see something bigger than what I was used to. Like I, my dreams didn't really fit or coincide with the typical educational or career path, building goals inherent in our American culture. Uh, this really came to a breaking point. Uh, crux where I realized that I needed to put my university studies on hold. I completed a summer semester and then a fall semester and I'd given it a year's trial. And my parents had always told me, you know, Todd, you, you got to go to college. If you don't go to college, you're, you're going to limit your chances at having a good career. And looking back, this was really sound advice uh, that I'll offer my children as well. Uh, the, the path I took was not the easy path in many ways. I've had to work harder because of my rebellious nature and the choices I made, uh, in part, the decision to leave university was very difficult because I was a really good student. I'd made straight A's when I was in high school and I had a really strong work ethic regarding study and learning. The problem was I just was not connecting with the university life. I I just wanted so desperately to travel. I wanted to get out on the road so bad that I just felt like I I was wasting my parents' money. And I felt like I was was wasting my time. And, you know, in relation to what I was experiencing with hanging out with the Krishna devotees and really getting into bhakti yoga, I came to a major crossroads and You know, there's several things that happened, though, that helped me to realize most definitely I was not going to be a monk. Uh, In some ways, uh, I was at a point where I had like three directions I could go. I could stay and study at school, at university. I could drop out and become a Hare Krishna devotee. (laughs) Or I could just go toward the unknown and leave the comfort of my current existence and start to travel, although I had no financial means to pull that off. Um, a few things transpired that helped me to rule out the devotee path. Uh, one of the things that helped me make up my mind was a a fellow monk who was in his forties had asked me if he could borrow $5 so he could purchase a birthday card for his mom. And something about that simple request in the moment really had impact on me. 
because I had this feeling like, what if I can't just simply send a card to my mom for her birthday? That left me a sense of, with a sense of heartbreak. And my parents were so important to me that the thought of really needing to leave them behind to join fully into this, please excuse my expression, cult, left me feeling a sense of emptiness that I couldn't shake. Uh, like, you know, if I took the path of a monk, Krishna devotee, and I, I gave all my belongings to the organization, I really just basically renounced the world, renounced money, renounced career, renounced family, renounced engagement with material life, renounced having children, renounced all the things that come with being a householder. Will that bring me peace? I just wasn't convinced that that could be true for me at the time. And what's really fascinating about the Bhagavad Gita is that this is one of the big questions that Arjuna has to face on the battlefield, which is really fascinating, you know, where Krishna instructs Arjuna that spiritual aspirants need to be active in the world. Accepting our fate as working individuals is our dharma, our life path. Arjuna doesn't want to go to battle yet. This is the journey that you're in and you got to just get into it and go for it and be involved. Even though you don't want to be on the battlefield, you have to embrace the battlefield. At least this is the way that I interpreted the story at the time because I was watching the aesthetics and the monks around me and I thought it looks so appealing because I could stop studying, I could stop trying, I could stop having to work, so to speak. Uh, yet the devotees reminded me that being a monk may look like one is dropped out of society, but the reality is that it's the same amount of work. There's no escaping the battlefield. So now the choice is just what does our battle armor look like? Do we put on a suit and tie and dig in, or do we wear a robe and shave our heads and meditate? In one way or another, there's no escaping, so... I just had to figure out which way to go. I respect everyone's path because now I can see we are all on the same path, no matter how we dress or disguise this reality. Renunciation is a really incredible path, which I have a lot of respect for. Putting on a suit and tie and playing the business game is a really incredible path that I have equal respect for. In part, I think that this is why I've tried, or in my opinion, succeeded at blending the two together. The art of being a yogi and making it a profession. So please understand that my choices aren't any sort of reflection on what I think anyone should do or shouldn't do in their life. Uh, the process of finding happiness in life seems to ultimately depend on our level of care that we extend toward one another. I believe that if we stop thinking about how we'll protect ourselves and focus on how we can protect one another, that this will help solve our dilemma regarding dissolving the anger and the fear and the hate in the world. These experiences I encountered with the Krishna devotees and the challenge, I felt navigating depression and my purpose in the world really made me think and and dig deep to think, to figure out what I wanted and what path I wanted to take. And decision-making 
is the testing ground for creative expression and character development. I started to wonder if it would be possible to utilize the yoga techniques I was learning and apply them in daily life as opposed to committing fully to a life of renunciation. I wanted to take what I learned from hanging out with the Krishna devotees and put it to the practice test. I really put my attention in continuing to chant the Hare Krishna mantra and use the mantra practice as a way to help me feel connection and to help me calm my mind. And when I would start to freak out and worry about things, I came back to my mantra and tried to bring my attention back to something that was bigger than me and helped me to get that sense that I'm just a drop in the ocean and appreciating how small I am in the big picture. I wanted to attempt to try to merge with the larger ocean of existence. I aspire to feel the essence of the experience of being human and connect to something larger and bigger than my ego. I feel like I learned so much by spending quality time with this particular tradition and culture. It also gave me a measuring stick for which to gauge my interpretation of what I experienced and help me decide what was going to be good for me in my own life. As I investigated the Hare Krishna movement further and spent more time in the community, I met people that had been Krishna devotees, and, and then they decided to leave the path of renunciation. And the renunciates served as the core of the movement, and they seemed to be surrounded by a community of lay practitioners that were either like me, genuinely interested, uh, and those that wanted freedom to earn money and possibly have a spouse and or a family. And as I spent more time with the people on the outskirts of the Renunciate Corps, I was made privy to the gossip and disgruntled conversations about the personality conflicts within the community. And I started hearing more about the stories about uh, what, what happened while they were monks and some of the challenges that came up within that whole structure of practice. And in many ways, hearing about the personal accounts of being a devotee in the past was like having the curtain pulled back and the, the man controlling the strings revealed. Uh, and this exposure definitely informed my experience and decision-making regarding what I plan to do for the future. And this also paved the way for countless situations I'd encounter where the same dynamic exists. From afar, the group looks perfect, and up close, it has all the same flaws that we personally exhibit. At the heart of the matter, it's, it stems from the axiom, wherever you go, there you are. And a third realization that really got me thinking about the role of renunciation and its close connection to resignation was when I had met one of the monks who was experiencing some health issues. And one of the main initial attractors for me into the Krishna culture was the food. I had begun to volunteer working in the kitchen and in Krishna culture, vegetarianism is at the center of the philosophy as nonviolence is seen as the pinnacle of the golden rule. I was already practicing vegetarianism, so this seemed to align and support my diet choices. And for those of you that have never had Krishna food, if you ever come across the, uh, come across the Krishna temple, 
where they're offering food, you have to stop in and have a meal. It's so delicious. It it is astonishing astonishingly sweet and the aromatic Indian spice that is used for flavor combined with the creaminess of the milk uh, used in it, it, it's just out of this world. It's it's like eating curry as a dessert. The food served at the Krishna temple is called prashadam. And the literal meaning of the Sanskrit word prashadam is mercy. So when we say Krishna prashadam, we're referring to Krishna's mercy. And the basic idea is that we often think that we own our food or that we deserve our food. And Krishna is the creator of our food and we survive on this nourishment. When the food is prepared, it is offered up to Krishna as a devotional representation of our appreciation for the sustenance that Krishna provides. So in short, it's creating deep reverence and appreciation for the life that we have. Uh, The closest equivalent we have in our Western culture and tradition to this ritual is saying grace. Just before a meal, we can bow our heads and bring our appreciation for the food on our table and create thanks for its life-giving nutrition. And the offering of the food as prashadam is an elaborate ritual that involves placing a portion of the food at the feet of a Krishna statue. So while the ritual differs, the intent remains much the same. I found this fascinating because it gave me the feeling that Even though I was in my home state of Florida, I felt like I began to travel to a foreign land. And I love this part of my experience here. And traveling internationally requires opening up to multitude of different approaches into life. And the experience with the Krishna community helped me further cultivate respect and appreciation for the diversity of humanity. I began to look at these different ways of treating food and caring for ourselves as expressions of gratitude for our existence. And I hel- it helped me to, to see that life truly is a celebration, even though we are sometimes in the face of suffering. And the color and contrast of humanity can ultimately lead to the connection we all have together and resolve what seems as difference. So as I was working in the kitchen, I learned that the way the Krishna devotees were able to give away the food for free is that the ingredients were government subsidies of massive bags of sugar and powdered milk. And Krishna food in part tastes so good because it has so much sugar in it. I'll admit that at the time when I realized that because they were a nonprofit religious organization, they, they didn't have the same tax structure as businesses, which allowed them to applied for food subsidies did make my head spin a bit. Uh, You know how sometimes things are reasoned out so that it does make sense, but something inside makes you wonder at the style of reason used to justify the means. Uh, Yet perhaps I'll, I'll leave that subject aside and get back to the fact that Krishna food tastes really, really good. Yet is it healthy? Was an even larger question. Again, who's to say, but I've met people along the way who will claim the food that they serve isn't really all that great for you. Uh, It tastes amazing, but from a health and nutrition perspective, you know, it, it raises a few questions. So back to the monk that was experiencing the health issues, there was almost a debate amongst the community. The dispute was like, all right, 
look, you know, I'm not worried about my body. I don't care about my body. I'm going to just, you know, eat and do what I want. Let my body go. And there's this contention about whether the body is the temple or is it an, is it ephemeral? And therefore how we treat it is inconsequential. And if the body is created by God and I love God, then I'm going to treat my body as if it is God. And therefore how I treat my body is a reflection of how I worship. The other side of that, okay, this is all temporary. The body is just a vehicle for my soul to inhabit. During its experience of incarnation on this planet, during this life, therefore, my body, you know, whatever I try to do to keep my body going is pointless because it's so fleeting, ephemeral, temporary. Therefore, I'm just going to focus my attention on connection to something higher than me and if and when my body goes so be it so what's the purpose and there was these debates going on about the big questions you know like why am i here what is my purpose what is the ultimate goal of the human being why are we here what are we here for the bhakti culture the krishna culture is quite philosophical at the core uh, while we would be in the kitchen preparing the meals. We'd get into all these deep discussions. Uh, as I started to mull and turn all these different ideas over, one of my main takeaways was I knew I wanted to try to take care of myself. I want to try the best that I can to maintain my overall health, given the understanding that there are so many opportunities for unforeseen circumstances to change my ability to do so. I'm going to put the effort in as much as possible to not be a burden on my friends, family, and society and do everything I can to try to take care of myself. So while I don't think that since I decided I wanted to focus on maintaining a healthy body necessarily implies that I could not be a good monk, I just think that in some ways I interpreted my own journey as a monk would imply I would be giving up on taking care of myself on some level or another. So these three incidents, though, seem to me the pivotal points from which I started to come to a decision. The birthday card borrowing money situation. <laughs> Hearing the stories about the behind-the-scenes drama that existed among the community. The debate about whether to take care of my body or leave it to chance. As well... I knew that being on antidepressant medication was giving me a brief reprisal from the depths of despair I had been feeling, but that it couldn't be the path I wanted. I would stay on forever. And at least I really didn't want it to be that way. All this brought me to terms with my decision to not become a monk in the ISKCON organization. And standing at that junction of this particular fork in the road of trying to figure out if I wanted to be a monk or if I wanted to be active in the world was a decision that took immense introspection for me at the time. It was an experience for which I'm so grateful. Having the ability to reflect on this time in my life gives me the feeling that no matter what decision I make, even though it could have changed my trajectory dramatically, I would have been okay. Having 30 years of hindsight has taught me that no matter how challenging a situation may seem, no matter how desperate and dark reality might feel, it will change for the better. 
I truly believe that no matter the path I would have chosen at that time, that somehow I would still be here now. Actually, now that I'm not gripped by the throes of depression, and I'll explain more about this in future yoga yarns, that my willpower to grow and learn in some ways has made this this decision-making process seem so trivial looking back. Yet at the time, it was monumental. (laughs) Exploring the decision of whether to walk the path of the householder or the renunciate is one that sets the stage for everything that was the common in my life. The thoughts around about the whole culture of taking care of ourselves versus being reliant on the organization really is at the crux of so many of my decisions that I make on a daily basis. Should I rely on my own efforts or should I rely on the community or both for that matter? It is a a question that is worth investigating on a regular basis. Now, looking back, my decision to keep on the move seems so obvious now that I wonder how I even had such a dilemma deciding (laughs) In almost all contemplative traditions, once a decision is made to be to go down the renunciate path, <clears throat> it is required that our commitment is rock solid with no wavering allowed. It, it's not like you become a monk and then you become a householder and then you go back to being a monk and then you go back to being a householder. That's frowned upon. If you've often given, excuse me, if you're often given this chance, it's a one-time shot. It's looked down upon that you would make that decision lightly. It's encouraged that if you're going to do something, you've got to do it. You've got to commit. You've got to put your whole effort, attention, and energy into it. So I was not there. (laughs) I was nowhere near that level of commitment to the renunciate path. That was not where I was. I was a teenager with no idea what in the world I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be involved with yoga somehow. At this point in my life, I had no inkling or understanding that I would be involved in yoga as a career path. Absolutely not. I mean, that thought had never crossed my mind at all, especially because within within this culture, it wasn't like, you know, go and hang out with the Krishna devotees and take a Krishna yoga teacher training and then open up a Krishna yoga studio. You know what I mean? I mean, there was no sense that yoga could be a career path. That just didn't even exist for me at all in that realm. What seemed apparent was that if I wanted to, quote, make a living as a yoga teacher, end quote, it required being a monk and removing all connection to financial earning and spending. Uh, While I was in the countryside of Alachua, I had also begun to explore the wider window of yoga. I took my first hatha yoga class and it was out in the forest and it was a really beautiful structure built of wood and glass it was a really beautiful setting and i will never forget the first time seeing yoga blocks straps and bolsters like right away the yoga room made me feel like it was a place that i would like to spend time and i and i wanted to hang out yet to be honest i don't think i was ready to take up the hatha yoga practice at that point that that came much later it could have been the teacher perhaps the style of practice but i don't remember being fully hooked the way i am now uh, this is what's really fascinating about yoga 
in my opinion, there's just so much to it. Just within the Hatha Yoga tradition alone, there's so many different approaches. There's so many ways to go about the yoga practice that when one is curious about yoga, it's really important, in my opinion, to move into a technique or a specific school and stay there a while to take as many classes as possible, be as inquisitive as possible. I believe that listening deeply to the questions arise and seeking answers is a big part of the path of yoga. I believe practice is personal and taking the approach of a scientist is critical. I always ask myself, how do I feel? Is this something I'm resonating with at this time? Do I feel excited about this? Am I doing this because I think other people want me to do this? Or am I doing this because this is truly what I want? When I start asking all these questions, I just try to stay open to receiving an answer. When the question arises as to whether should I stay or should I go, don't, I believe it's important to not be afraid to explore and try different things. At some point, if I keep searching and keep looking, something starts to resonate. It's an incredible process. It's an inspiration journey to traverse. If I investigate where I am now and I feel like I'm intrigued, I feel practice is working for my betterment. If I'm working for my practice in a way that I feel this deep connection and I feel deep appreciation for it, then for me, this indicates to me in my own practice that I'm on the right path. What's really interesting here is that when I recognize I am on a yoga path and the samskaras, which are the deeply ingrained habit patterns, they come up in me. I'm learning to accept my resistance. I'm coming to terms with the process of loving my own reservations. When friction heats up my surface, I know now the solution is to stay with the yoga practice. I know this friction is partly because I don't want to look at what is at the core of my irritation and therefore it's uncomfortable. And sometimes this is an overwhelming feeling like I just have to bail on this whole yoga thing. It <laughs> seems the only option. Uh, and this is where sometimes the yoga practice and these yoga traditions are saying, well, this is when it's the most important time to not fall, to stay true to the practice and to stay with it and confront what it is that is challenging me and double down on the effort. And this is why I wanted to tell you this story today. I want to share how my struggle ultimately led me to yoga and how yoga is leading me toward inner peace. I just want to tell my story to remind myself to continue to practice. I believe it's really important to face my fears I also believe that ultimately I want to love myself and softening my intensity to try to figure out the essence of life, which often seems like a paradox. I don't want to be afraid to explore. I don't want to be afraid to go outside of my comfort zone. I honor my truth and respect what it is that I am truly seeking and looking for. So hopefully you enjoy this little storytelling session. <laughs> I will continue these yoga yarns uh, and continue to be inspired by the incredible guests that are so kind to appear on this forum. If you have any thoughts, questions, or comments on anything that I brought up, 
please send them my way. I wish you uh, happy yoga and deep journeys in your practice. Love is the only way. Thank you. Namaste. Native Yoga Toddcast is produced by myself. The theme music is dreamed up by Bryce Allen. If you like this show, let me know. If there's room for improvement, I want to hear that too. We are curious to know what you think and what you want more of, what I can improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, please send us your thoughts to info at Native Yoga Center. You can find us at nativeyogacenter.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate it and review, and join us next time.